0: This episode of the Orthobullets Podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to metacarpal fractures and pediatric lateral condyle fractures, which are two topics that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. We'll start with metacarpal fractures, and the first question reads: A 27-year-old female sustains a shortened oblique fracture of the fourth metacarpal shaft. She is treated non-operatively with splint immobilization. At follow-up, she is found to have an extension lag at the MCP joint along with reduced grip strength. Which finding is the most significant contributor to this outcome? And the choices are 1. Rotational deformity, 2. 15-degree apex dorsal angulation, 3. non non-union; 4. 5 millimeters of shortening, and 5. Extensor tendinitis. So shortening of metacarpal fractures greater than 2 to 5 millimeters may result in extension lag at the MCP joint as well as reduced grip strength due to loss of tension on the extensor mechanism. So the correct answer to this question is 4, 5 millimeters of shortening. Indications for non-operative treatment of metacarpal shaft fractures with splint or cast immobilization include stable fracture patterns, no rotational deformity, and acceptable angulation. The amount of acceptable angulation differs for each metacarpal to 20 degrees for index and long fingers, 30 degrees for ring fingers, and 40 degrees for small fingers. Strauch et al. performed a cadaveric study quantifying the magnitude of MCP extensor lag produced by metacarpal shortening. The authors found that for every 2 millimeters of metacarpal shortening resulted in an average of 7 degrees of extensor lag at the MCP joint. Al-Khatan et al. prospectively reviewed conservative management of spiral-slash-long oblique fractures of the metacarpal shaft treated with palmar wrist splinting. Extension lag was initially seen in all digits, but recovered by one year. Grip strength at one year was also found to be 94% of the contralateral hand. The author's indications for surgery included severe angulation with failure of close reduction, rotational malalignment, and significant displacement with loss of bone-to-bone contact. Moving on to the next question, what is the effect of shortening of metacarpal fractures? And the choices are 1. Causes the greatest degree of extensor lag in the index finger. 2. Causes the greatest degree of extensor lag in the little finger. 3. Results in an average extensor lag of 7 degrees for every 2 millimeters of shortening. 4. Results in an average extensor lag of 14 degrees for every 2 millimeters of shortening. And 5. Has no effect on grip strength. So this is very similar to the last question that we just did, but to drive this point home, cadaveric models have demonstrated a 7 degree extensor lag for every 2 millimeters of metacarpal shortening with the amount of lag increasing in a linear fashion. So the correct answer to this question is 3, the effect of shortening on metacarpal fractures is that it results in an average extensor lag of 7 degrees for every 2 millimeters of shortening. Studies showed no statistical difference in the amount of lag in regard to the digit involved. Based on muscle length-tension relationships, cadaveric models have also been used to determine an 8% loss of power secondary to decreased interosseous force generation with 2 mm of shortening. Because the intrinsic muscles of the hand contribute anywhere from 40% to 90% of grip strength, decreased interosseous force generation secondary to metacarpal shortening will invariably cause a decrease in grip strength. And moving on to the final question for this topic, A 66-year-old woman was a restrained passenger in an automobile accident. She sustained a direct blow to her non-dominant left hand as the airbag in her automobile deployed, and she now reports pain, swelling, and difficulty moving her fingers. Radiographs show metacarpal shaft fractures of metacarpals 3, 4, and 5. Appropriate definitive treatment should consist of, and the choices are 1, application of a compressive soft dressing and aggressive edema control and range of motion exercises, 2. plaster immobilization without reduction of the fractures, 3. closed reduction and plaster immobilization, 4. surgical fixation of the middle finger metacarpal and closed treatment of the ring and little finger metacarpals, and 5. surgical fixation of all three metacarpal fractures. So while most isolated metacarpal fractures can be treated non-surgically, multiple metacarpal fractures are inherently unstable due to the loss of support that an intact adjacent metacarpal provides. Therefore, treatment should consist of surgical fixation of all three metacarpal fractures. And moving on to the final topic for this review session of lateral condyle fractures, the first question reads, an eight-year-old male fell on the playground and sustained a lateral condyle fracture with displacement that is seen on radiographs. If left untreated, what deformity or complication would you expect from this injury? And the choices are one, cubitus valgus, two, heterotopic ossification, 3. PIN neuropraxia, 4. recurvatum, and 5. radio ulnar synastosis. So this patient has a displaced lateral condyle fracture. If neglected, this injury may progress to non-union with subsequent cubitus valgus deformity. Other complications include lateral spurring, seen approximately 50% of the time, which may lead to a clinical pseudovirus appearance but not actual cubitus varus. So the correct answer to this question is 1. cubitus valgus. Lateral condyle fractures are common injuries and are usually salter harris IV injuries extending into the trochlea but sparing the ascific nucleus. It is thought that due to the lateral extensor pull at the fracture and or synovial fluid interposing the fragments, these injuries are more prone to nonunion as compared with other pediatric elbow fractures. Treatment for nonunions is variable, ranging from curatage with in-situ fixation with or without bone grafting to redirectional osteotomies. Park et al. reported a series of 16 lateral condyle non-unions that underwent inside to compression screw placement without bone grafting. All patients achieved union and had improvements in range of motion. It should be noted that three of these did go on to have angular growth deformity over 10 degrees. Tien et al. developed a novel technique to correct cubitus valgus secondary to non-unions after lateral condyle fracture. Their technique involves fixing the fracture in situ with compression screws, then performing a supracondylar dome-shaped osteotomy correcting the angular joint line deformity. This technique poses a solution to the common osteonecrosis encountered after ORIF and bone grafting for these deformities. Moving on to the next question, a six-year-old girl is referred for a displaced lateral condyle fracture. What is the most appropriate treatment? And the choices are 1, immobilization in a long arm cast for 3 weeks, 2, immobilization in a long arm cast for 8 weeks, 3, open reduction and immobilization in a long arm cast for 3 weeks, 4, open reduction and internal fixation with smooth pins or cannulated screw, and 5, open reduction and internal fixation with plate and screw construct. So the patient has a displaced lateral condyle fracture, therefore simple immobilization for 3-8 to weeks is likely to result in malunion or nonunion. Close reduction of such injuries is rarely successful. The fracture is unstable, so fixation is required after open reduction. Because the fixation must cross the physis, smooth pins are indicated for the skeletally immature elbow. Open reduction with fixation has been shown to reduce the risk of delayed union and malunion. So the correct answer to this question is four, open reduction and internal fixation with smooth pins or cannulated screw. Moving on to the next question, at what age does the lateral epicondyle normally ossify in males? And the choices are 1, 2 to 4 years, 2, 5 to 6 years, 3, 7 to 8 years, 4, 9 to 11 years, and 5, 12 to 14 years. So the lateral epicondylar epiphysis is the last to ossify in the elbow at age 12 to 14 years in males. The first secondary ossification center to ossify is the capitellum, which ossifies during the first 6 months of life. Next is the radial head, ossifying between age 3 and 6 years. The medial epicondyle appears between 5 and 7 years, and the trochlea and olecranon at 8 and 10 years, respectively. In females, the appearance of ossification centers is about a year earlier than males. So the correct answer to this question asking at what age does the lateral epicondyle normally ossify in males, the correct answer is 5, 12 to 14 years. Moving on to the next question. A seven-year-old with a history of an elbow injury treated conservatively presents for evaluation of ongoing elbow pain. The coronal alignment of her elbows in extension is symmetric. On physical examination, she has full but painful range of motion of her elbow. She has tenderness at the lateral elbow. She is able to cross her fingers without difficulty. A radiograph shows a lateral condylar nonunion. What is the best definitive treatment plan for this patient? And the choices are one, observation alone, two, observation with splinting, three, osseous fragment excision, four, internal fixation of the nonunion, and five, ulnar nerve decompression. So we're told that this patient has developed a painful lateral condylar nonunion. To address her pain, an ORIF of the lateral condylar nonunion should be completed. So the correct answer to this question is four, internal fixation of the nonunion. Delay in diagnosis and treatment of lateral condylar fractures may result in a nonunion. Cubitus valgus may develop secondary to the fracture nonunion. As the deformity progresses, a tardy ulnar nerve palsy may develop. However, if no symptoms are present and nonunion is the isolated issue, observation is the recommended treatment. If the nonunion presents with instability, pain, or cubitus valgus with ulnar nerve palsy, then fixation of the fracture fragments is recommended. To, et al. evaluated lateral condylar nonunion to ascertain long-term clinical outcome. Patients were separated into groups based on prior history of either Milch type 1 or type 2 injuries. Patients with Milch type 1 were more likely to develop limitations in range of motion and limitations in functional outcome. Shimada et al. reviewed the results of fixation of lateral condylar non-unions in 16 children. Their indications for treatments were pain, instability, cubitus valgus, and ulnar nerve dysfunction. 13 of the 16 patients had osseous union after initial operation most patients had good to excellent functional outcomes. Moving on to the next question, nonunion following a pediatric lateral condyle fracture has been associated with which of the following? And the choices are 1 ulnar nerve palsy, 2 radial nerve palsy, 3 heterotopic ossification, 4 Parsonage-Turner syndrome, and 5 cubitus virus. So displaced pediatric lateral condyle fractures should be treated with surgical reduction and fixation to avoid nonunion. Nonunion has been associated with cubitus valgus, pain, loss of motion, and tardy ulnar nerve palsy. The ulnar nerve palsy develops as the nerve becomes stretched from the cubitus valgus deformity. So the correct answer to this question is one, ulnar nerve palsy. In the presence of a painless nonunion, in situ screw fixation and bone grafting is the recommended treatment option. And moving on to the final question for this review session, A seven-year-old girl undergoes open reduction internal fixation of a displaced humeral lateral condyle fracture. Dissection around which portion of the fracture fragment should be avoided to protect its blood supply. And the choices are 1, medial, 2, lateral, 3, superior, 4, anterior, and 5, posterior. So the predominant blood supply to the lateral condyle of the distal humerus comes posteriorly. Non-unions occur because these fractures are intra-articular and bathed in synovial fluid. When non-unions occur, the characteristic deformity is a cubitus valgus and subsequent ulnar nerve symptoms. Skak et al. found that trochlear growth may become impaired after this fracture. Displaced lateral condyle fractures require typically open reduction and internal fixation to obtain anatomic articular alignment. Jacob et al. noted that dissection during ORIF can lead to osteonecrosis of the condylar fragment, so care should be taken. So the correct answer to this question asking about dissection around which portion of the fracture fragment should be avoided to protect its blood supply for a lateral condyle fracture, the correct answer is 5, the posterior portion. That's all for this review session about metacarpal fractures and pediatric lateral condyle fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.